Good morning. It is a delight to be with you to, again on the Lord's Day. Turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then put your finger in Ephesians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you to pray for the McCafferty's. We, have, uh, we are blessed with uh, Daniel's brother Joel filling in for us, uh, playing on the, on the guitar. Uh, lift up Daniel and Alyssa. Their, uh, their newborn is uh, expected to arrive. Uh, I think the Amazon delivery date is September 5th. So uh, lift them up. And uh, do, we, do we have a new arrival today, a, a new addition? Would you like to introduce? Not to put you on the, not to put you on the spot. Well, welcome, Charlie. Welcome, Lamborns. It is a delight to see you. So lift up the McCafferty's, lift up the Lamborns. In fact, pray for every family that has had or is having a new addition to the family. They could use your prayers. Deuteronomy 5. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, and in the sense is only with our fathers, but with us also, with, the, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face, At the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Can I get an amen? As the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice. And he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. You said, behold, the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near And hear all that the Lord your God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you. And we will hear and do it. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. That they would fear me. And keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go, say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right Or to the left, you shall walk in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Let's pray. Lord, we we see this recounting of the covenant which you made with the people of Israel at Sinai. It is a good covenant, for it gave blessing to, an unprecedented privilege to a people who did not deserve it. As we will see in a couple weeks, there wasn't anything special about Israel. They were not a great nation. They were not a mighty nation. They were not, uh, they were not many compared to any of the other nations of the world. And yet you chose them. You plucked them out of slavery and you gave them this very good and very kind and very gracious covenant whereby You upheld them, you protected them, you provided for them. All on the condition that they would be your people and they would walk in your ways and and keep your commandments. As we know from the rest of Scripture, man cannot be justified. Man cannot keep this covenant. Which is why... We are blessed to stand in one who did on our behalf. Thank you for providing the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf who kept every law. 
every statute. He always walked perfectly and upright before you. He was always fully and completely pleasing in your sight. How amazing it is that Jesus was fully pleasing before one who sees and knows and is fully acquainted with every thought, every intention, every desire of the heart. Jesus is our perfection. He is our righteousness. Thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ, your blessed Son. May we delight and rejoice that we stand in Him. Amen. I now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I had planned to get through verses 11 and 12. We are going to cover verse 11 today. This will be part one of the unity of the body. Part one of the unity of the body. the end of chapter 1, Paul brought up what was perhaps the most endearing picture of the church. It's a picture that we would all do well to appropriate as our own picture whenever we come to think of the church. When speaking of exalting Christ, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 22 to 23, that he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Listen to this description. Which is his body. This is perhaps Paul's favorite analogy or picture of the church. It is the body of Christ. Now in that line there are multiple themes which all converge into, into one hub as it were. That draws out Paul's theology of the church. And one element of this doctrine of the church that was dearly important to Paul, as a Jewish apostle commissioned and sent to Gentiles, this was vitally important to him. It was the matter of how Gentiles related to Jews within God's salvific program. Recall that the the early church was almost entirely a Jewish people. It was it was almost entirely a Jewish movement. In Acts one fifteen, Luke tells us that there were a hundred and twenty disciples in the upper room, and these were mostly Judean, uh, probably or probably mostly Galilean, with a few Judean believers in the upper room. And then by the end of the next chapter, Acts 2, verses 40, verse 41, there were 3,000 Jewish pilgrims who were added at Pentecost. And these are Jewish pilgrims. Jews who didn't live within the confines of Israel, but who were still uh, belonging to a Jewish heritage. It's not until Acts 9, when Saul's persecution inadvertently uh, creates the first missionaries as, as the Christian believers, Jewish Christians within Judea scatter that the gospel is first taken out in earnest 
among the Gentiles. And it's not until Acts 10 where God calls all foods and, and thereby all including the Gentiles as well ceremonially clean. It's not until then that Gentiles visibly become part of the church. And this became a huge controversy. How does Jew and Gentile within the confines of the church, how do they relate to one another? Much New Testament ink was used to address this controversy. How does the Gentiles... How do the Gentiles, those those pig eating, uncircumcised uh, and, and just until a few days ago, heathens, how do these just reformed pagans, how do they stand shoulder to shoulder with us Jews who have believed from the first? Is there a social hierarchy within the church? Are the Jew and the Gentile in Christ equal? Are they on equal footing? Or do Jewish believers with their Jewish heritage and their Jewish customs and their Sabbaths and their circumcision, are they, are they extra equal when compared to the Gentiles? Uh, the broader question is this. How should the church which is comprised of peoples of all different kinds of ethnic and cultural backgrounds and makeups, how should the church view itself? Well, Paul addresses that question in the whole unit of verses 11 to 22. And he begins in verses 11 and 12 by using a, 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 a thing called anamnesis, and it's Basically, uh, coming to better understand where you currently are by looking at the steps that got you to where you are. Looking at the past to better understand the present. That's, that's anamnesis is the technical term. And he already did this in the first ten verses of chapter two. We saw in verses one to three where we were. Where we were, what we used to be. And what we once were, we were we were dead in sin. We were enslaved in sin. We were condemned in sin. That's where we were. But as Gentiles, as non-Jews, our problem was further complicated by the fact that we were far off, to, to use Paul's words in this passage, we were far off from the saving program of God. And what that means is that the offer of salvation and the promise of peace, the gift of eternal life and all the blessings that come with being among God's people, being of God's people, being under the Messiah. We might as well have been a million miles away because we were not, as far as our heritage was concerned, we were not of the people of God. As Gentiles, we were lost in space. We were adrift at sea with no sign of promise on the horizon. We had no, we had no promise to stand on. We, had, we, we, we were completely estranged from any kind of legitimate hope that we might have for a better tomorrow. That's where we 
were. That is, as Paul says in verse 11, that was where we were formerly. Formerly. Yes. That was, as, as he says in verse 12, where we were at that time. But now that we are in Christ, praise God, verse 13 is our reality. We have been brought near to God. Do you see that in verse 13? In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the heart. That is the beating heart of this, of this unit, verses 11 to 22. In Christ, we used to be far, far away, exceedingly far off, completely off the reservation, the, the salvific rever- reservation completely alienated and foreign to the people of God and the program of God's saving grace. That's where we were, but now in Christ, praise God, we have been brought near. And in bringing Gentiles like us, non-Jews, the original recipients of God's grace, there are six barriers, six obstacles, hindrances, Problems that God had to overcome to bring salvation to Gentiles. The first, as we see, is the fact that we were scorned by the Jews. We were scorned by the, shall we say, the original people of God. The old stump. And that's what we are going to cover today. Next week we will also see that we were separate from Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were without hope. And we were without God. Now let me, let me read the text. And like I said, we're going to cover only verse 11 today, the first point. But Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world Let me just read verse 13 because it is so good. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our first consideration in this unit, and the only one we'll look at today, is the fact that we were scorned by the Jews. Paul starts off in verse 11, therefore remember... And this is something I have to stop and and camp on for a second, because this is important. The call to remember is a repeated theme. It is a reoccurring theme. It is a consistent exhortation throughout the scripture. In Exodus 13, 3, Moses exhorted the people, remember this day. I mean, how many chapters have we seen that as we've been reading through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and even today again in Deuteronomy. Remember this day. What day? The day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. We, we, We saw that those exact words today. He brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
And the fact that Israel time and time again grumbled and complained and doubted the good intention of God and, and questioned this, this numbskull Moses that God appointed as their, as their leader demonstrates they did not remember the mighty hand which God had brought them out with. And the repeated times that they said, oh, let's go back. Let's go back. Remember, the, remember all the leeks and the cucumbers and the garlic that we had. It, it wasn't so bad. That tells me they didn't remember the slavery from which God mightily brought them out of. God's people needs, need to be a remembering people. God's people need to be a remembering people. That's why Moses said, we, we read this last, last week, Deuteronomy 4.1, Listen, every parent in this room knows what I'm talking about. Listen. Verse 1. Verse 9, Give heed. In other words, listen up. Listen carefully. Give heed to yourself. And keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and grandsons. You can't pass on what you yourself don't know. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at at Horeb. Verse 15, watch yourselves carefully. Verse 23, watch yourselves. Verse 39, know therefore today and take it to heart. Make sure it's in the safety deposit box of your heart and of your mind. Seal it away. Take it to heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. The believer does well to remember God and the Word of God and the attributes of God. That means we remember what God is like. We remember, we are mindful of what He has revealed about Himself. And the believer remembers these things as you Remember these things, beloved. You bind the truth of God upon your soul and you write it upon the tablet of your heart. And as that happens, your knowledge of God, what you are mindful of, as far as it is the truth of God, your knowledge of God leads to wisdom. And as it's applied in your life, that wisdom becomes, as the proverb says, a graceful wreath upon your head and beautiful jewels around your neck. Psalm 2, David put it, Psalm 1 rather, verses 2 and 3, David put it like this. He who delights in the law. When David says law, he's not just talking about the list of thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's, it's, it's the whole of God's revealed word. He who delights, he loves it. He wants to be in it. It's, it's, it's valuable to him. It's, it's good to him. He who delights in the law and meditates, they, uh, investing it deep into your mind so that you can remember it, so that it's there when you need it. He who meditates on it day and night, what, what, what will that guy be like? He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season, and whose leaves will not wither. And whatever he does will prosper. Does that, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Good incentives to remember 
God. And that's why Paul is exhorting the believer to remember what God did to save him. Remember what God did to save you. This is, I hope you see, this is an exhortation. As every command, as every piece of instruction in Scripture is, it is an imperative. This isn't merely good advice. It's not a suggestion. Sometimes we respond to things that people tell us to do as if it's nothing more than advice and a suggestion. That's not what this is. It's not something to do if and when we have the time and convenience. Well, then I'll do it. One thing that weighs heavily upon me, one of my burdens as a pastor is that we might as a church be constantly thinking biblically about our salvation. That we would think of what God has done for us in the terms and in the manner that the Bible describes. To the effect that when, when you and I think about our salvation, when we are contemplating it, when we are meditating on it, Psalm 1 says. Or perhaps when we're explaining it to others. We would see it as far as something far more than just simply and merely asking Jesus into your heart. And now that you're following him, your life is all the better. And the road before you, it's a little bit sweeter. The melody in your heart is a, is a little bit softer. And heaven's waiting for you on the other side. That is what the world thinks salvation is. We would do well to remember our salvation and to know and to remind ourselves and to meditate what has gone on behind the scenes or, or as I've said before, under the hood in God saving us. And the first element that we are to remember, that we are to be mindful of, that we are to commit to memory and visit again and again and again and as often as we, as we need to is the fact that as Gentiles, as those who are not of the Jews, we were scorned by the Jews. Verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, and we know Paul is specifically addressing those in the Ephesian churches to whom you and I can, 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 can greatly identify with, we can relate to, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the, uh, by the so-called circumcision. Now, as a pastor, there are certain words in the Bible that just don't give me warm fuzzies about preaching about. But here we go. What, what Paul is doing here is is bringing up something that that you and I may not immediately relate to but I guarantee you that every single gentile in the first century instantly understood what Paul is talking about circumcision was the outward sign of the mosaic covenant now there are certain things that are dead give, dead giveaways about who people are and what they what they do Someone with a badge and handcuffs and, and perhaps a gun is a what? 
police officer, someone with a with a big domed red hat and and drives a big elongated red truck and and carries uh, and has to be strong enough to carry a big long hose is a. Yeah, these are all signs or or symbols of their office. Someone with a with a stethoscope and a white coat is a. Doctor. These are all signs that identify who these people are, what they're about. The sign for the Jew, amongst several signs, but the the big sign, the big mark that they had was circumcision. That began with Abraham and it was passed down through his descendants. Circumcision was the sign. It was the symbol of the covenant that Israel had with God. Now, like I said, it, there were many things that acted as symbols or, or signs, but this was the sign. This was the, this was the big way, the key way that made them made the Jews stand out. It's what marked them as different people, as as marked people. And the purpose of, of this and, and these many other, uh, we could call them um, perhaps peculiarities or distinctions, uh, different, different features of the Jews, it was intended to be a means to start conversations with those outside the covenant. As, as people heard about the, the strange and, and different customs of the Jews, the intention was that this would be a means for the Jews to talk about their God. It was it was a way to get the door open to explain the kindness and the goodness and the grace and the power of their God. Circumcision as a human work done upon the flesh with human hands. That's what Paul calls it right here. It was intended to be a symbol of the divine work done upon the heart where no human hands can go. That was the intent. That was the purpose of circumcision, but unfortunately, the Jews completely abrogated the purpose, and they utterly failed to use it for what it was designed to do. They rather came to pride themselves in their sign of the covenant, and their pride, their arrogance, made them say to themselves, "Well, golly, we must be special people indeed." I mean, if the one true God, the Creator of the of the 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 earth, the heaven and earth, and the one who put all the stars in place and calls all their stars by name, if He wants us, if He chose when He could have chose anybody, He chose us. Well, we must we must be a cut above the rest. We must be something special because. God didn't give such a sign to the nations. Well, they must not be very special people at all. That's what circumcision led the Jews, or rather it was the means, the cause was their pride. That is what they said, at least in their hearts. And so Paul brings up this matter of Jew and Gentile. This this conflict, this animosity. And I, I, you have to see this is so much more than, than what's gone on down here. This is so much more than just a, a dichotomy or a distinction between this guy's been snipped and this guy hasn't. This was 
This was the Jews' way of identifying, at least in their eyes, two completely, completely and utterly separated groups among whom there is absolutely no mixing, absolutely no matching. And every Gentile could immediately relate to this this racial animosity that had been levied against them for centuries. Sadly, levied against them by the very people who were supposed to lead them to God. Where the Jews, the privileged people of the covenant, saw the ignorance of the Gentiles, in seeing their ignorance, they were supposed to see a great opportunity to show for, for, for God to show grace and mercy to those who were currently destitute. They were supposed to see an opportunity for God to show grace and mercy to those who were currently lost, currently perishing, currently enslaved, just as they had been millennia prior. That was exactly the state they were in when God redeemed them in Egypt. They were supposed to see the opportunity for God to continue showing mercy and grace to others as God had showed mercy and grace to them. Instead, they slammed the door shut and saw nothing but unmarked, uncircumcised people who are outside of the covenant. They don't have the mark. They are unworthy of the covenant blessings. They aren't like us. They're unworthy of the covenant blessings. They are unworthy of the covenant privileges. They are unworthy to stand before God with us. The first great barrier God had to overcome in bringing salvation to Gentiles was the failure of the Jewish people at large. There, There were... There was there has always been a remnant. There has always been a believing remnant among among God's people. But at large, the people of the Jews failed to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. That was what they were supposed to be. And the sign of the covenant which ought to have made them respond in gratitude in humility, instead was the means of them being catapulted into this arrogant, domineering, self-aggrandizing, prideful people. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, they were a stumbling block. They were a stench for the nations. Instead of saying, we have received blessing, let us share it with you. God has been so kind to me. Come here, sit with me. Let me tell you about the God who has been so good to me. Let me tell you about him. Instead, they said, I have been blessed. I am blessed. Because I'm special. And you know what that says about you? The fact that I'm here, and you're out there. You know what that says about you? It says that you are not like me. You are not like us. You're nothing but a Gentile, pagan, heathen dog. 
you younger kids, you know, exact, I don't have to exposit the raspberry. That's what the Jews did in their circumcision. They looked down their long, arrogant noses on anybody and everybody else who didn't have their mark. What Paul is doing is he's reminding these Gentile Christians, these Christians who didn't grow up as Jews, and they were never allowed on the interior. They were never brought in. They were never welcomed in. Paul's saying, remember the utter hopelessness of your situation. You, like the Jews, like every man, woman, and child who has ever been born and, and, and lived on this earth, you were dead in sin. You were not seeking God. You were captive to the world, the devil, and your own flesh. Ephesians 2, 1-3 was, like us, true of you. But... The only people who had the cure, those who were the stewards of the scripture, those to whom the scripture and the word of God and the revelation of God, the people to whom those were entrusted, the stewards of the promise, the stewards of the covenant, shut you out. They shut you out. So that you had absolutely no promises to stand on. As a Gentile, as those who were outside the covenant of Israel, you had absolutely nothing to stand on. Your entire bleak existence was nothing, was, was like a night sky without a single star to shed an ounce of light. Your very existence was utterly bleak. As one man says now, that, that, that's the black velvet backdrop for the, for the brilliance of the good news of this diamond. And as one man says, now comes the sweet pivot point. Paul says, yes, the, the Jews, they, they have the sign of the covenant. They have the mark, they have the expression, the symbol of the covenant. But it is a symbol, it is a sign without the reality. Their, their circumcision, their mark in the flesh, the thing that set them apart, it is a shadow that is owned by no substance. It is utterly empty. All their religiosity that their circumcision is supposed to represent, them, the, 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 the substance uh, uh, behind them being a set apart and marked people is utterly empty. Empty. And why this is good news for the Gentile is all the while the Jews who posed as spokesmen for God. And, and, and posing as spokesmen for God, they're telling the Gentiles, you stay far away. Do not come near. You are not welcome. You are not wanted. One Jewish commentary, one, uh, one stream of rabbinical thought was that the Gentiles, God created the Gentiles to be nothing more than fuel for hell. 
I don't know if there's any less, if there's any more of a degrading way to look at people who are made in the image of God. To think that their very, that their only purpose for being brought, for being given the spark of life was so that they could burn for eternity in hell. Jews told you as Gentiles, stay away, you're not welcome, you're not wanted. You don't belong here. Paul is saying that all the while they said that, posing as spokesmen for God, in reality they weren't spokesmen for God. Their circumcision, it is nothing more than something performed in the flesh by human hands. It's nothing more than an external mark. It doesn't reflect what's on the inside God is not interested in the mere mutilation of flesh and the spilling of blood. You have to see the Jew looked only at the mark upon his flesh and concluded, I am right before God. I am well with God. It is well with me and my soul because of this mark. God is not interested in the mere marking or the mere mutilation of flesh and the spilling of blood. You know what Psalm 51 says? You know what Psalm 51 says that God delights in? Not the rending of flesh or the spilling of blood. It is, or we could say the mark in the flesh. God is pleased with truth where? In the inward Parts. It is a it is a spirit that has been broken over sin. It is a, it is a heart that is contrite. It is a heart that desires to please God and is no longer puffed up with pride and and the pleasure of self that God delights in. God delights not in a body that has been circumcised. God delights in a heart. That has been circumcised, a heart that has that has been marked, a heart that has had surgery performed on it, a heart that has been changed, a heart that has been purged of impurity and uncleanliness. God cares about a heart that bears the mark of his covenant, not the flesh. So Paul says, in effect, that their mark, their circumcision, the rending and the mutilation of their flesh, it means absolutely nothing. Their flesh, their mark, which was supposed to point to something, points to nothing. Their flesh, which was cut merely by human hands, but their heart remains untouched by God. And all the while, when that was their platform, that was the grounds for everything that they, everything that they said to you, 
That was the grounds for them pushing you as Gentiles out and away and keeping you far off. All the while they made you feel like rubbish. They told you as much that you were rubbish to be discarded. Paul says, in effect, they, and here's the good news for us as Gentiles, they, insofar as that's what they said to you, they were not speaking for God. Is that good news or what? And so Paul says, remember that. Remember that. Remember their hostility. Remember the grief they put you through. Now, why does Paul tell Gentiles to do that? Why should we remember this? That this was the Gentile plight. Why should, why should this be a concern for us 2,000 years after this, this contention, this conflict at large had been resolved in Scripture? Well, here's why it's vital for us today to remember. Because this shows, this is the first thing that the first barrier that Paul is bringing up here, specifically addressing Gentiles, specifically addressing those who were outside, outsiders. This shows what God pushed through to save us. This is another way for you as a Gentile to look at your salvation. Paul is showing us the great and the relentless and the persevering sovereign might of God's saving grace that goes to work and accomplishes God's purposes in the face of human opposition. It's not enough that we praise God for giving us life when we were dead, that we were raised up when we were enslaved, or that we were seated as princes when We had been prisoners on death row. God has done more than those things in that he has demonstrated his saving grace upon Gentiles. Mark this over and against the opposition of an entire nation who wanted to keep the doors to the kingdom bolted shut. God pushed through that barrier to save Gentile dogs like you and me. I mean, is anybody here of Jewish descent? We're all Gentiles, right? Beloved, this is for us. This is good news we can claim for our own. There's a sense in which, as Gentiles, reading the Old Testament is kind of like reading somebody else's mail. This is good news. This is Scripture for us. God demonstrated his saving grace over and against the opposition of those who wanted to keep you out of the kingdom. And and I have to give this caveat. I am not anti-Semitic. This is not a reflection on all Jews everywhere, every time. This is this is what the this is what the Jewish people, especially at large at the time of Christ, believed. I read an account of, of one of one rabbi, uh, a Gentile woman came to her, came to him 
And she was, she was contrite. She was everything Psalm 51 said. She was contrite. She was in tears. She hated her sin. She wanted to reform her ways. She asked him, what must I do to be saved? Just show me. And he closed the door on her inner face. You're a Gentile dog. It's no point. If the Jews had had their way, at least the Jews of Jesus' time, where would we be now? Where would you be now? Where would you be headed had God not broken through this conflict, this barrier? God's grace flung the doors open and he said to you, as those who were far off, he said to you, come on in. Come on in. Jews wanted to limit God's grace to themselves. They, they wanted their own holy huddle. God said, no, that's not where I'm stopping. I will go beyond and I will do whatever I please. And you know what? It pleases me to, sa- to save these people that you are calling dogs. And that's why dogs like us stand shoulder to shoulder with the Jew, with, with the believing Jew. Because we, the truth is, is, we both stand on equal footing upon the shoulders of, our, of Christ. And so how should we respond to news like this? How should we respond? And Paul is exhorting when he is telling us to remember that we were on the outside, when we, that we were far off, and that God brought us inside to be near to him. How should we respond? Well, let me show you how the Gentiles responded when this happened to them. Acts 13, 46 to 48. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. He's speaking to the Jews. Actually, he's speaking to a mixed audience. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. He's speaking to the Jews. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Mark this. When the Gentiles heard this, it's a mixed audience. They began rejoicing. That's good news for for people like us. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Why did they rejoice? Why did they glorify the Lord? Because they could finally see that God had been kind to them too. God has been gracious to the Gentile too. And Gentiles, Gentile beggars are now openly welcomed to his banquet. They and, and we were far off. We have been brought near. And this has all been made possible because the Jewish blockade that had thus far kept the door to the kingdom bolted shut had been abolished, removed. That's good news. The gen- these Gentiles learned that the God of heaven wasn't like their 
the, the, the pagan gods which they had formerly worshipped and formerly followed and formerly trusted in. He, the, 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 the one true God is not limited or confined or constrained by what man does. God isn't, God isn't undermined when human monkey wrenches get thrown into his motor. He just sovereignly plows on right through. He's a God who blitzes through. In this case, he blitzed through all of the religious minutia and he puts for the Gentiles not a system of works, not a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, not a prescription to undergo surgery to be saved. He puts Christ Jesus the one whose yoke is lowly and easy and one whose burden is light. He puts Christ Jesus center stage and he says, look to him, trust him, follow him, belong to him and you will be saved. You don't have to go through these people to get to me. You don't have to be circumcised to come to me. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. You don't have to observe all 613 commandments in the, the law of Moses, nor the thousands of additional stipulations that the rabbis had added over the millennia. These things are not a condition for you to come to me. And had God not done that, we would still be out there far off on the outside looking in. When religious, privileged people pushed you away, God said, you come in. That was the first barrier God put aside to save you Gentile dogs. We'll look at the remaining five next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being kind and gracious to us. We thank you from the depths of our hearts that evil people, even when they have a veneer of religiosity, Evil people don't speak for you. You've made the way very clear. You have worked through and despite the evil machinations of people who had perverted your, your word. You have removed... The system of works which made the proselyte, which made the convert twice a son of hell as, as his teacher. You have removed that and you have made it so very clear what is of most importance that the sinner is saved. The sinner, whether he have decades 
of upbringing, of being brought up in the church or have a religious background or the, or the pagan heathen who has been an open idolater all of his life, they are likewise saved and justified on equal standing in Christ Jesus. How good that is for, for former outsiders like us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for bringing us near. Thank you for being so very kind to us. Help us to be mindful of our salvation. Amen.